risen. All right, we're getting better. We're getting better. We're going to keep working with it as we go through the message today. But let me tell you why that's such a significant truth. Because that means he's still changing lives today. And so you saw it in Bill and Kate's story, and some of you have experienced it in your own story. Last week after the service, I was talking with a young lady. She was not yet a follower of Jesus. It was her first time coming to our church, and we were sitting down. We were talking through some of the story that we were just singing about in that Mercy Tree song. And I was telling her about how you can have a relationship with Jesus because of what he did on the cross, that he took our sins for us, that he became sin, who knew no sin, so that you and I could become the righteousness of God. And as I was talking through some of that information, a friend of mine was walking through the cafeteria, and his name is Jim Henry. He's one of our ushers. He may have helped you find your seat today. And I said, Jim, could you come over here and uh, share some of your story with this young lady? And he was talking about when he first went to church, and he was hearing this story, and he wondered to himself, how could a guy dying 2,000 years ago impact my life today. And the reason why is because he's still alive and he's still changing lives. He is risen. risen You're still paying attention. That's good. (laughs) And because he's risen, he can still change lives. Now, before we jump into the message today, I I just want to to give you a survey of kind of what's going to happen around the globe today. People are going to gather together. Many of them are going to talk about the same passage of scripture that we're going to talk about. It's a passage of scripture where there's some women that go to the tomb. They're wondering about who's going to roll the stone away. The stone's already rolled away. The tomb is empty. And then an angel says, he is risen. risen. That's right. Now we're getting it. I like that. And then people are going to go to lunch together and they're going to make some memories. They're going to have, you know, family time or friend time or whoever's you're hanging out with. And then they're going to have Monday. And the vast majority of them will be largely, for the most part, unchanged from what they were like before they went to church the day before. And so I want to ask you this question today, is that God's plan for you? Or does God have a plan for you? We talk about it as a church all the time. You heard Pastor John say it when he got up here and gave announcements and welcomed you. We're glad you're here. Told you about the next series. But is, your, is God's plan, when you talk about connecting people to Jesus for life change, not just for your friend that you invite or somebody that you hope comes someday or the guy across the room, you don't know who he is. Maybe God wants to change your life today. And if you think about life, it's oftentimes like a journey. And so if you've ever been on a vacation or a road trip, you know, a hike, or you plan to get on a plane, whatever it is, you've got to, you, know, you, you know where you think your destination is going to end up, and maybe you've got some rest stops in, the, in between and some other plans, excursions you're going to do. But oftentimes, the moments that define the whole trip are things you didn't plan. Kids say something, somebody does something, you go on a detour, something. It's those unexpected moments. I was talking with my wife this week just about some of those in our lives, and I was, trying to, I was trying to remember if I had shared this one story with you all as a church or not, and I know I've told it a lot of times to different people, and maybe some of you have heard it, maybe some of you haven't, but I remember when I was about five to seven years old, my mom was teaching me something that all parents teach their kids, look both ways before you cross the road. And I've been playing at a friend's house across the street from our house, and my mom was standing in our front yard, and I was in our friend's front yard, and she's telling me, you know, look both ways before you cross the street, and I thought, I'm going to teach her, you only need to look one way before you cross the street. So I step out on the road. The next thing I hear is my mom screaming. The brakes on this Jeep, you know, screeching. And in case you're wondering, I made it. (laughs) And I look over and I see the driver of this Jeep. She's terrified. The Jeep stops before it hits me. And I learned a lesson in that moment. That wasn't planned, unexpected moment. And I almost always look both ways before I cross the street. (laughs) Almost always. And God's gracious in the other moments. But as I think through it, there's probably a handful of moments like that that just stick out, the unexpected things that happen that changed my life. I think about when we had a baby. I, I knew that we were going to have the baby. In fact, my wife had a C-section the first time. I had no idea how that baby was going to change my life. I think about just moments that were unexpected. And some of you know some of our story. My wife, right before we planted this church, was diagnosed with HIV. Three days later, we got a call 
telling us that she had been healed from HIV. Changed my life. I remember the moment that I first heard the news about Jesus Christ. That he didn't just want religion. He didn't want me to just clean up my act, but he actually wanted a relationship with me. And it made sense. That changed my life forever. And so maybe God has one of those moments for you today. We're going to see one of those moments when we look at this passage. Let me tell you, today's message is titled, God's Perfect Plan for Imperfect People. And God's got a plan for you, and I believe He's got a plan for you in this very moment. And His plan for you might be to change you. And so as we look at this story, this is going to be in Mark chapter 15. I'm start reading verse 40. We're going to read all the way to chapter 16, verse 8. So in a moment, we're going to read a lot of verses together. When we read this, some of you are familiar with this story. My hope for you, those of you who are familiar with the story we're about to read, is that you encounter God, the living God, in a new way and have a renewed awe for him when we come to this empty tomb today. For those of you who are not yet followers of Jesus, maybe you have a religious background, maybe when you were a kid you went to church, or maybe you come here periodically even, my hope for you is that God changes your life today. That something I say makes it make sense. That somehow God uses his word to transform you and have you take the step of faith to enter into a relationship with him. And I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that at the end of the service today. Right now, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Mark chapter 15 is where I'm going to start reading in verse 40. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, that's fine. We'll put the verses up on the screen. We've always got Bibles on the back table, and so they're a gift to you. If you want one, you can get up and grab one right now. I don't mind. Or on your way out, grab one so you have one at home. Uh, but the verses will be on the screen behind me. In Mark chapter 15 and verse 40, the context for what's happened is what we oftentimes as Christians refer to as Good Friday. But if you experienced it, you wouldn't say that it was good. It was dark. It was a difficult day. In fact, literal darkness covered the earth from noon until 3 p.m. As the judgment of God came down on Jesus Christ on the cross, as he was taking the wrath of God for your sin and for my sin. And today's message titled, God's Perfect Plan for Imperfect People, it's because we're all imperfect people, by the way. And it doesn't mean that we had a bad hair day or that we got a couple pimples or we wish we could lose a couple pounds. When I say that we're imperfect, it's that we're all sinners. And so if anybody came in here thinking that you were perfect, you're the most deceived person here. We're all imperfect. We all fall short of God's perfect standard. And that's why Jesus went to the cross, to take on your sin, to take on my sin. He who knew no sin became sin for us on the cross so we could become his righteousness. And darkness covered the earth when that happened. And leading up to that, he was betrayed by one of the 12, Judas, who betrayed him. His closest friend on earth, Peter, denied him. Not once, not twice, three times Peter denied he ever knew who Jesus was. And then he stands trial before a guy named Pilate, the Roman governor, who has authority to have him killed. That authority was given to him by God. And he he stands there before the people and he says, I find no guilt in this man, talking about Jesus. He's innocent from Pilate's lips. No reason to defend Christianity. No reason to defend Jesus. He's not committed any crimes. He's innocent. He said, but there's a custom. And I can release to you a notorious criminal, Barabbas. The guy was a murderer. He says, or I can release to you the king of the Jews, Jesus, this innocent man. Who do you want? And the crowd says, it's almost inexplicable, Barabbas. He says, what do you want me to do with Jesus? Crucify him. And Pilate doesn't want to crucify him. So he has him scourged instead. Scourging's an awful punishment. Many people died from that. It could be an execution in and of itself. We talked last week about how gruesome it was. There's no limit to the amount of lashes that he would receive. You'd probably see his rib cage torn open, maybe his intestines even coming out. It was terrible. And then in pity, Pilate brings him back before the people, like, hey, what, now? And they say, crucify him. So they crucify God's son on the cross. He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he breathes his last. 
He says it is finished. And then a Roman centurion comes. This is where we leave off. This is where we're going to pick up today. A Roman centurion, a guy who's pledged his allegiance to Caesar, a guy who has to say that Caesar is Lord, a guy who has to say that, that he is the Son of God. He changes his allegiance, and he comes to the cross. He's seen a lot of people die. In fact, the centurion that comes to the cross is probably the guy that was in charge of the execution squad, a four-man team that killed Jesus. And he says, surely this man was the Son of God. So that's the first character we see. We're talking about imperfect people today. Notice some of the characters we see as I read through this passage of Scripture. So there's a centurion, the guy who's physically responsible for Jesus being nailed to the cross. Now, we're all responsible because it was our sin that nailed him to the cross. Verse 40 says, there were also women, which is interesting that Mark's going to record a story where women are the witnesses. Now, we live in a different day and age than they did back then. And back then, if Jews heard testimony from women, it wasn't even valid in court. The fact that Mark uses women here as the the witnesses coming to the tomb shows he's telling a true story. Because if he were making it up, he wouldn't have used women. He would have had one of the disciples go and showed them to be brave. But it's these women. He says, they're also women looking from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene. If you read about her, you can just, if you make a little note in your Bible, Luke chapter 8, she had seven demons cast out of her. She's not perfect. And Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and of Josie's, and Salome, or Salome, depending on who pronounces it and how you want to pronounce it, and I worked on it this week, but I'm going to go with Salome today. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him, and so these women were his disciples, and they supported them out of their own wealth, we see in Luke chapter 8. I ministered to him, and there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Verse 42, and when the evening had come, that's on Friday, he died at 3 o'clock on Friday, when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, the Sabbath is on a Saturday. Now here's another character, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, the council that's being referred to here is the Sanhedrin. Those are the people that had Jesus crucified. They're the ones that made the false accusations that brought him before Pilate. Now, we know, being fair to Joseph of Arimathea, that he didn't vote for that. But he was part of that group. And that group made religion more important than a relationship. So he's not perfect either. In fact, they're all sinners. So he was a member of this council who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God. So he took courage. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Now, here we're going to see that it's clear that Jesus was really dead. Pilate was surprised to hear that he, talking about Jesus, should have died already. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And here we'll make it really clear. A centurion has seen a lot of people die. He knows when somebody's dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph brought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of rock. And then if you mark in your Bibles, you might want to mark this next part. And Joseph of Arimathea rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. It was sealed. And verse 47, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Josie, saw that he w- where he was laid. So they knew which tomb it was. They don't go to the wrong tomb. And then chapter 16, verse 1. When the Sabbath was passed, that's Saturday, now it's Sunday morning, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. So they're expecting to find a body. They're expecting him to be dead. And very early on, the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, and the the tense of the verb here is that they were saying it over and over, and so there's some anxiety here. Who will roll away the stone? Who will roll away the stone? Who's going to roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw the stone. Here's one of those moments, unexpected moment that will change your life. In fact, it changes all of history. And looking up, they saw the stone had been rolled back. 
It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side. We know from one of the other gospels, this is an angel dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. And they said back, but we are alarmed. No, they didn't. Maybe they did. Mark didn't tell us. I don't know. The angel says, you seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. Here's your hint. He is risen. All right, you're fading on me here. Come on. He's not here, the angel says. See the place where they laid him? But go tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And then all throughout the gospel, what we've seen in the book of Mark is that Jesus said, hey, don't tell people. I healed this guy. Don't tell anybody. And they go tell. Now they were just told to go tell. Listen to the irony. Verse 8. And they went out and they fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Don't tell, don't tell. Oh, we got to go tell. Tell. We're not going to tell anybody. But we know they told people. You know how we know? Because you and I have heard. But you think through this passage of Scripture, and think about the characters that we have assembled here. You've got a centurion. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Oh, he knew how to kill somebody. He was the leader of the execution squad. He was physically responsible for nailing Jesus to the cross, and Jesus can forgive him. Let me tell you something. If you can forgive him, he can forgive you. God's got a perfect plan for imperfect people. He had a plan for the centurion. He's got a plan for you. He's got a plan for me. you got Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene. She was a woman who had seven demons cast out of her by Jesus. Let me tell you something. She, like all of us, had a story. Can you identify with the centurion? If not, can you identify with Mary Magdalene? What about Salome? Salome what we think to be true about Salome is that she's, she's the first helicopter parent ever recorded in history. You know, helicopter parents are like, hey, my kid needs to play more on the soccer team. It's like, your kid can't kick. Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> but it's my kid. I need him to play more. Salome, we read about, is, is the, the mother of James and John, two of the disciples. And in Matthew chapter 20, she goes to Jesus and says, can one of them sit at your right and one of them sit at your left? She's got issues. And so do you. So do I. Can't relate to them? Joseph of Arimathea. The guy's on this council. He's respected. He's got this reputation. But he knows something's missing in his life. Any of you successful? But still wonder, is there more? They all have a story. Why is Peter mentioned in verse 7? He's not mentioned because he's the leader of the disciples, by the way. He's mentioned because he's blown it so bad. Anybody here think, oh, that applies to God loves all these people, but not me? There are, they all have a story, and let me tell you something, none of them are perfect, and neither are you, and neither am I, because we've all sinned, all of us, and fall short of the glory of God. But God has a plan for us. But here's the reality. God's plan to us, not to him, but to us, oftentimes seems unexpected. God's perfect plan for us oftentimes seems like an unexpected plan. And you see it with these women, and you know that they don't expect to find the tomb empty because when they're going, they got these spices, they're planning to anoint a body. Everything that's happened here is unexpected to them. And isn't that how life oftentimes goes? I mean, most of us here, I hear a couple of babies crying, maybe not for them. The rest of us, I promise you, things have not gone exactly as you've expected. In marriage, anybody, if anybody here is married, let me tell you, it hasn't gone as you expected. <laughs> Prince Charming wasn't quite as charming as you thought he was. <laughs> And we're going to start a series next week, by the way. <laughs> but most of our dreams, like, are you sitting in the seat that you're in right now? Well, your life exactly, is that how you thought it was going to go? Most of us, even if it's good, that's not how you thought you were going to get here. That's not how you thought things were going to go. If you, if you start looking around at life with other people, too, that's how it goes for everybody. Like, ask that guy that got on the United flight last week. Do you see that story? I don't know who's, I'm not like picking United or picking the guy or if both were wrong, I'm not making any commentary on that, but I promise you the flight didn't go the way that he expected it to go. 
I saw, I saw one uh, post on social media where somebody from Southwest Airlines, you know, Southwest is known for doing like fun stuff with their passengers when they get on. And one of the flight attendants got on and said, welcome to Southwest where we beat our competition, not our customers. <laughs> Email Southwest if you don't like that comment. <laughs> Life doesn't go the way that we expect it to go. In more serious news, some of you may have saw last week after Palm Sunday in Egypt, there were two churches that were attacked by terrorists. I was reading one story about a guy who was a deacon in one of those churches. The day before was his daughter's third birthday. He and his wife had been married for four years. And he told her, he said, I, I sense that I'm going to be joining the martyrs in heaven at some point soon. And the next day at church, he was leading the, the singing time. He was a deacon. He put his robe on for the kind of church that they were in. And he went up to the front. But he told his wife and daughter, he said, I want you to sit in the back today, which was odd to the wife, she said. And he went to the front. And she said, and then this explosion happened. And she thought it was doomsday. Everything went dark. And she eventually found her husband at the front of the church dead. It was like he knew, like he expected it, like God gave him some leading in that, but she didn't. Her life will be changed forever now. Different, unexpected moments. And they happen for all of us. Anybody here divorced? If you divorced, let me tell you something. There were, you may have seen it coming at some point, but when you stood at the altar and you made those promises, that's not how you expected it to go. Anybody here have kids? Let me tell you something. You see, you get Christmas cards from other people and their kids look so happy. Let me let, me let you know a secret. That's Photoshop. <laughs> it doesn't go the way that you expect it to go. Some of you on the way here today got in a fight with each other. That wasn't your plan for Easter. So whatever happened in your story, that's not the way that we expected. In fact, somebody, one person I was just talking to about a book in the lobby, they said the book's called Shattered Dreams. That's how a lot of us could describe dreams. Not fulfilled, shattered, or at least very different than we expected them. And that's, you can probably imagine what it was like for these women then. So here's these women. They get mentioned in eight lines three different times. That's like Mark's putting a footnote in an old document, by the way. If you ever read a book that has footnotes in it or ever read an article or maybe even a blog, and they'll put a little number or they'll direct you in some way to another source. And what Mark's saying here is if you don't believe the story the way that I'm telling it, because as original readers, when they would read this, these women would still be alive. He's saying, go ask Mary Magdalene. Go ask Mary, the mother of James. Go ask Salome. Go ask one of these women. They'll tell you the story. I'm not misportraying them, but try and imagine what it was like to be them. Imagine you're Mary Magdalene. You've had seven demons cast out. God's radically transformed your life, and you followed him, and you've been financially supporting him, and you've gone with him, and he's cared for you, you've cared for him, and he said he is the way, the truth, and the life. Now he's dead. Is that how you expected it to go? That's not how we expect life to go. If you're them, you don't expect this. You ever had a loved one die? I mean, they loved this guy. They loved Jesus. He was a friend. He was a rabbi. He wasn't just some guy they read about a long time ago. They were walking with this guy. They were with this guy. Now he's gone. And some of you have maybe lost a spouse, sibling, parent, grandparent, co-worker, maybe even a child. Then you know what death is like. And you know what it's like to grieve. I remember when my dad was having, a, he had several surgeries. He had his last surgery at the hospital, crying out to God, saying, Can I borrow him a little bit longer? You just want, you, you wish you could change things. So here's these women, they're mourning. And, and, and you'd think, if you're just reading through the book of Mark, like, why don't they know that the tomb's going to be empty? We know they're not expecting that, because in verse 1, it says they, brought spice, they bought spices so they could go and anoint his body. The spices, they're articles of death that you put on a, a body. They're expecting to find a body. That's chapter 16. If you go earlier in the book of Mark, you read that Jesus said on the third day he was going to rise multiple times. 
In chapter 8, I'll read you the verse. Mark chapter 8 and verse 31. And he began to teach them. The Son of Man must suffer many things. He's talking about himself. He's talking to his disciples. Must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. Well, there it is. It's really clear. But maybe they missed that one. Okay, chapter 9, verse 31. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And after three days, and he, when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. All right, said a little bit different. Same idea, in case you missed it the first time. But still, some of us remember what it was like to be in school. <laughs> you just don't always remember stuff. Chapter 10, he says it again, saying, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and he gets real detailed this time. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. They'll condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him. Talk about detail. Spit on him, flog him, kill him, and after three days he will rise. And you might think to yourself, why didn't any of the disciples think, it's the third day? Maybe the tomb is empty. We should go look. But before we give them a hard time for that, and we get proud, and we start thinking to ourselves, that's what I would have done. I would have thought, I'm going there. I'm going to see the empty tomb, because he said it, and I believe it. <laughs> How many of you woke up today thinking, today's the day he might come back? Because he says that too. Amen. And many of us get so consumed with the daily details of life that we don't think much about that. I'm not asking you to confess that. I'm just saying it's true for many of us. However, if he came back today... You could go back and look. He said, I'm going to come back. He said, I'm going to come back. He said, this was going to happen. And it happened exactly the way that he said it. But we just weren't thinking about it because we're thinking about other stuff. And here you see these women, and they're, they're asking this question in verse 3. Verse 3 is really what gets me as I read through this passage this time. Who will roll away the stone for us? Multiple times they're asking, who's going to get rid of the stone? Who's going to move the stone? Now, you and I, we just read it all together. We know who rolls away the stone. We see in another gospel account that God actually uses an angel, but it's God who rolls away the stone. See, God defeats death. He is risen. risen All right. Some of you are a little slow. He's risen. risen. Boom. Now you got it. Now we're going. You know that he can defeat death. But they're concerned about this daily circumstance, this stone. Now, if they knew and remembered what he said in Mark chapter 8, Mark chapter 9, Mark chapter 10, why would they be worried about a stone? He defeated death. Why are you worried about daily circumstances? But many of us do the same thing, by the way. We say that we trust Jesus with our eternal destiny. We say that we place our faith in him so that we can have eternal life, so that death wouldn't be the end, that we could live with him forever. But then we don't trust him with the daily stuff. We don't trust him with our family. We don't trust him with our relationships. We don't trust him with our job. We don't trust him with our money. We don't trust him with our sex life. We don't trust him with whatever the th- if plan's not going the way that I want. We want sin. So, hey, I just know better than God. I want to enjoy that and still have him on the side. We don't trust him with that stuff. But we say we trust him with our eternal destiny. Now, listen, if he can overcome death, you can trust him with the daily stuff. And some of us, we, thinking about kids, my wife and I, we have four kids. I remember when we had the first baby. When I had the first baby, it was different than when we had the fourth baby. When we had the first baby, it was like, watch out, there's germs on that. By the fourth, it's like, yeah, they're going to be fine. You know, they'll build up their immune system. It'll be okay. But if you think back to those of you who've had children, when you had that first baby, thinking about getting a babysitter, and you get that babysitter, you, do you have a background check on them? Did you do a background check on the people who did the background check? You find out, can they do CPR? Do they know CPR? Honey, do we know them? Do, I mean, like, do we really know them? Not do we know their parents. Not we met them. Do we know them? But the last one's like, do they show up, like, kind of close to on time? That'll be great. <laughs> well, sometimes we treat it like, God, are you really qualified? Like, you can handle the cross. You can handle the tomb. So you can have my eternal destiny. I'll take care of my kids. I'll take care of my money. 
I'll deal with my debt. I'll deal with my whatever relational issues. I'll deal with it. I got this. I got this. I'll call you if I need you, God. Maybe you could sprinkle a little God fairy dust on some of this stuff to make it go a little bit smoother. Then the question is, do we really trust him with our eternity? Here they're so consumed with this stone. Who is going to roll away the stone? Who's going to roll away the stone? Then verse 4, they have one of those moments. The unexpected moment, because here's the reality. God has a perfect plan for imperfect people in unexpected moments. And here in verse 4, what we end up seeing is the stone's been rolled away. God's the one who rolled the stone away. And when they see it, it's one of those moments that not only changes their lives, it changes all of history. Because it's at that moment that they begin to realize he is risen. That is right. Which means he's alive, which means he can change you. That was the moment they didn't expect. Every once in a while we have those moments in life. As you think through some of them for yourself at the beginning of the service, maybe you thought of some. I was reading this week about a guy. Uh, his name was Nicholas Ludwig von Zizendorf. Yeah, don't try and get that one again. I didn't even say it last service. I didn't try. But it's the third, and we're rowdy, right? All right. That's right, indeed. That's right. He's ready. He's just like waiting to say indeed every time. That's right. <laughs> Zizendorf was a guy. He lived in the 1700s. And when he graduated from college, he had a moment he wasn't expecting to have. He ended up founding a, a community of believers together. That, that There was only 300 of them. It was a real small group. Eventually, they became part of the Moravian Church. But when they were just at the beginning, it was just 300 of them. They started a, a prayer meeting. They called it a prayer watch. That would pray 24 hours a day. And they didn't stop for 100 years straight. Started with this, this group of people. They ended up sending out over a 65-year time period over 300 missionaries to different unreached people groups. Guess where one of the places was? North America. But the moment he had in college, or after college was over with, he was going around in Europe to some of the cultural high spots uh, that were around there at the time, and he went to this one art exhibit, and there was this one painting, and so he's seen other paintings, right? He's seen other stuff. And he sees this one painting called Behold the Man. It was a painting of Jesus Christ with the crown of thorns on his head and blood running down. And underneath it, it said, I did this for you. What have you done for me? Which caused Zizendorf to realize, I've loved you my whole life, but I haven't really done anything for you. Which then changes the way that he lives, which impacts the whole community, which ends up impacting the world. You never know when those moments are going to come. I remember in my own life, sitting in a Bible study at my public high school, and I didn't go to church. I wasn't a church person, but I got invited. I come to this Bible study, and I'm, I'm wondering about answers to life. thought everything was meaningless. And this guy looks at me and says, Scott, if you died today, do you know where you'd spend eternity? And it was in that moment, it was like everything froze for me. And I started to think through, well, I'm not as good as somebody. And I knew I didn't belong there and all these other Christian kids. And I'm not as good as those Christian kids. But at the same time, it's not like I'm pushing old people down in the hallway. I'm not like just a jerk here. So maybe I'm not that bad. And I'm kind of weighing through all this stuff. And then I just blurt out to him, you don't know. Nobody knows the answer to that question. You haven't died yet. But you know how he knew? Verse 4, the tomb is empty. That means... That means that death has been defeated. So that means for those who place their faith in Christ, the death isn't an ending, it's a new beginning. See, they go in, and what happens in verse 4, this is the transforming moment. The, the stone's been rolled away. Why is the stone rolled away? Have you ever wondered that? Like we talk about who's going to roll away the stone. Why is the stone rolled away? Let me tell you why it's not rolled away. It's not rolled away so Jesus can get out. It wasn't for, you know, Jesus wasn't inside the tomb going, I'd be the savior of the world if I could just get this stone out of the way. That's not what's happening here. So why? Why is the stone rolled away? You go to John chapter 20, and you see his disciples, they're in a room, they're locked, they're terrified, and Je nobody has to open the door. Jesus appears in the room. 
He has some disciples in Luke, at the end of Luke, and he's on the Emmaus Road he's been with, and they eat with him, and then he vanishes. The resurrection, but he doesn't need the stone to be rolled away. The stone isn't rolled away so Jesus can come out. The stone is rolled away so the women can go in. The stone's rolled away, not for Jesus' sake, but for yours and for mine. So we can see that the tomb is empty. And the tomb being empty makes several declarations. This tomb being empty, the tomb's empty so that your life doesn't have to be. The tomb is empty to show that death has been defeated. The tomb is empty, darkness has risen. The darkness that came over those three hours from noon until three o'clock, that's gone. Because the wrath of God has been taken at the cross and it's been defeated when the tomb is empty. That means your enemy has been defeated. That means death has been defeated. The tomb is empty means that sin has been defeated. The tomb is empty means that you can have peace. The tomb is empty means that you can experience, not just know about in your head, real forgiveness. The tomb is empty means like Bill and Kate that you saw in that video earlier, that your life can be changed, that dead bones can be brought back together, that God does the impossible. The tomb being empty means there's no separation from the love of Christ for those who are in Christ. Jesus. The tomb being empty means there's now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. Did I mention the tomb's empty? The tomb's empty. What does that mean to you? The tomb being empty means that death is not an ending, but is a new beginning for those who are in Christ. Because God's plan is not only an unexpected plan, God's plan is that you would have new life in Christ. God's plan is that you'd have new life in Christ. Pick up with me in verse 5. We were just looking at verse 4. Look at verse 5. And they go into the tomb, and entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. Of course they were. It's what happens every time people see angels. And he said to them, do not be alarmed, but everybody is. He says, you seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. You ready? Are you ready? Are you ready? He is risen. That is true. He's not here. But here's the reality. What Mark's telling us here, he's not proving the resurrection. The tomb being empty isn't evidence. It's not irrefutable proof. Now, if you read through the rest of the Bible, you'll see there is irrefutable proof. What you'll see is, and you can decide you don't believe it, but you can't deny the facts. The facts are there. You can decide not to believe it. That's your choice. But the evidence is irrefutable. Over a 40-day time period, Acts chapter 1, verse 3, over 40 days, he appears to hundreds of different people at different instances. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, at one time, and one time, he appeared to 500 witnesses. You see these resurrection appearances. There's eyewitness accounts, not just from this angel here who says the tomb is empty, not just from these women. There's a story that gets made up that his body got stolen. By, that they're trying to cover this up. The disciples could have never done that. The disciples that scattered when he was arrested, 10 of the 11 of them are martyred for this information. You don't think they'd release the truth? The evidence is irrefutable, but Mark's point is not to prove it. He's declaring it. He's declaring the tomb is empty, that he has risen. I slid it in. That's right. You're with me. You got it. Now you guys are nailing it. But look at verse 7. Look at what he says next. But go tell his disciples and Peter. Why does it say and Peter? And Peter, that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as I told you. Just as he told you. And what he's referring back to is when Jesus told them in Mark chapter 14, verses 27 and 28 on your own, you can go back and look that up or maybe we can pop the verses up there on the screen. Mark chapter 14, verses 27 and 28, when Jesus was talking to his disciples before he was crucified, he told them all, he's fulfilling prophecy. He said, you're gonna be, the, the shepherd's going to be struck. You're all going to scatter. What he's telling them is you're all going to deny me. And all of them, not just Peter, all of them said, no way. 
No way. Not, we will not. We are going to go with you. We'll go with you to death. But Peter, Peter's was worse. Peter says, even if all these bumps, even if they dump you, that's paraphrase, but even if you, these bumps, they dump you, I'm with you. I'm with you to the end. Peter blows it worse than any of us have ever blown it. Peter, I mean, have any of you had a relationship with Jesus where you walked with him on earth for three years, became his closest friend, stood face to face with him, heard all of his teaching, and then tell him at the end of his life, even if everybody else denies you, I'm with you, to, I'm willing to die with you. And then when everybody scatters, you and John, you come sneaking into the, the high Caiaphas' house, the high priest's house, and you're in the courtyard and you can see Jesus in the upper room being beaten and being mocked, and you get your first chance and you deny Jesus. And there's a second chance. You were with him. No, no, I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. Because God's a God of second chances. But he blows his second chance. And then there's a third chance. And at the third chance, he not only denies Jesus, he says, he calls down cursing from God and says, if I'm lying, may I be cursed by God. I don't even know who you're talking about. And then the Bible says that he went and he wept. He's broken. The reason why, verse 7 says, go tell the disciples and Peter is in case Peter was wondering, am I still included in that? Yeah. Because Jesus gives new beginnings. We see it all through this passage. I mean, it's the day after the Sabbath. The Sabbath is the last day of the week, Saturday. Sunday is a new day. It's a new week. It's the morning. We read it here. The sun is rising. Oftentimes in scriptures, we see that God does a new work in the morning. God's mercies are new every morning, the book of Lamentations says. In Psalm chapter 30 and verse 5, weeping may tarry for the night, remain for the night, but joy comes in the morning. But it's not just the time of day, and it's not just the symbolism of the passage, it's the people. And do it for Peter, he can do it for you. But not just for Peter, with the centurion. If he can forgive the centurion, he can forgive you. But not just the centurion, Mary Magdalene, Joseph Arimathea, they all have a story, so do you. All of us are imperfect people. God's got a perfect plan for imperfect people, and that plan includes you and me having new life in Christ. So the question is, do you? Because that's why the tomb was empty, so that you could have new life. But how? How does that happen? Well, the Bible tells us. In fact, there's a verse that I've, I've alluded to a couple times throughout this message, but it tells us that we're all imperfect. Whether it's the centurion or Joseph of Arimathea or the Mary that we haven't mentioned that much or Salome or Mary Magdalene or Peter or Scott or you, it says this, Romans chapter 3 and verse 23, for all, all of us have sinned. And this doesn't mean like there's this thing out there that's kind of like a barrier between us and God. No, we're all sinners. Because you lied, that makes you a liar. No, no, no. How many times do you have to do it before you're a liar? One. We're all liars. If you lust, you're an adulterer. All of our, we are sinners, and that means we fall short of the glory of God. God can't have sin in his presence, so there's a major problem here. But God's got a perfect plan, even though we've got a major problem. Romans chapter 5 and verse 8 says this, but God shows his love for us, and that while we are sinners, while, not once we clean our act up and start coming to church and be a good person, it says, while we were sinners, Christ died for us. So what happened on Good Friday when he was taking the wrath of God on himself and darkness covered the land? That was for you. And for me. But what does it mean? Well, the wages of sin, what we get, what we earn is death. And Jesus took that death on him. So he could offer us a gift. So the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so he's offering us a gift. It's like if I was saying, hey, here, take this Bible. It's yours. What do you have to do? You have to receive. You have to take it. Take the life. How do you do that? The Bible answers that too. In Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, these two verses might be the most important verses you've ever heard in your life. Listen to this. If you confess with your mouth 
that Jesus is Lord. And that means that he's in charge, that you surrender your life, the daily stuff and the eternal stuff to him. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. He is risen. Many people believe it in their hearts. Do you? It says here there's a promise. If you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you confess with your mouth that he is Lord, here's the promise, you will be saved. That means you'll be rescued from that sin. I mean, he became sin, Jesus, who knew no sin. He was innocent. I find no guilt in this man. So that you could become the righteousness of God, you could be rescued from your sin. And verse 10 says this, for with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. If you need to be saved, if you need to be rescued from your sin, I'm gonna give you an opportunity to do that right now. I'm gonna ask all of us to bow our heads and close our eyes. And Jesus came, he died for our sins, and he, he defeated death, he defeated sin. sin. Sin has no victory anymore. Death has been defeated. But you have to receive the gift that he's offering you, and you do that by what this verse just said, the passage just said that I read to you, Romans chapter 10, verses nine and 10. You confess that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. If you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you believe that you're a sinner, that means you need a savior. And you believe that Jesus rose from the dead, he's the only one that can defeat sin. Then why wouldn't you ask him to be your savior? The only answer that possibly could be true is that you don't want him to be Lord. You want to be in control of your life. If you're willing to surrender your life to him today, you can be saved. You can be rescued from your sin. And what I'm going to do in a moment is I'm going to pray a prayer. And it's a prayer really in response to those verses I just read. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. If you want to look them up on your own, if you're watching online or if you're watching the video cafe. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So I want to give you an opportunity to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. If you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead to save you from your sin, then I encourage you to pray this prayer with me. If you want to ask Jesus to be your Lord and Savior, not for the 50th time, but if you've if you don't know him as your Savior right now, if you do know him as your Savior right now, I pray that I hope that you'll be praying for the people around you that don't. Or for those of you who don't know Jesus as your Savior, would you right now place your faith in Jesus? Just pray this prayer. I'm going to pray these words out loud. You can pray them out loud as you sit in your seat or you can pray them silently in your heart to the Lord. But I'm just going to acknowledge sin and ask, say what I believe and acknowledge Jesus as Lord and ask him to be Savior. If you want to pray that with me, you pray these words all of us with our heads bowed and our eyes closed before the Lord. Dear Heavenly Father, I know that I'm a sinner. I confess my sin to you. That should be your first confession. And you just pray it. If you believe that's true, you just pray it to him in your heart or out loud. And then pray these words. And God, I believe your son Jesus died for that sin on the cross. I believe in my heart that he rose from the dead. The evidence is there. The question is, do you believe it? Do you believe in your heart that he rose from the dead and defeats death? And do you want him to be your Lord and Savior? And if so, pray these words with me. God, today, I ask your son Jesus to be my Lord. I confess he is in charge. I surrender my life. I ask Jesus to be my Savior. I want your forgiveness for my sins. Thank you for new life in Christ. With everybody with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, if you just prayed that prayer, would you, would you do me a favor and just slip your hand up in the air like you're telling the Lord? I want to know. I want to be able to pray for you specifically. I see a couple ladies over here on the left. I see a gentleman in the front. Thank you so much. Guy in the middle, main section here. Anybody else? You pop your hand up. I see somebody in the back on the left there. And if you just prayed that prayer, if you're going to pray that, you can pray it right now. Maybe you didn't pray it with me because you weren't sure what I was going to pray. You just pray it in your own words. Pray it right now. You can pray it. 
Now, let me ask you something. I saw several people raise their hand. And let me tell you, all of heaven rejoices when one person begins a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so we rejoice with you. But it's the beginning of a relationship with Jesus. And so if you did trust Jesus as your Savior today, I want to ask you that connection card that was mentioned for our guests at the very beginning, whether you're a guest or whether you've come here a hundred times, would you check on there today you trusted Jesus as your Savior and you can drop it in the offering box on your way out or bring it to the prayer counselors are going to be up here if you want to bring it to them. That'd be great. We want to give you some information so you can grow in that relationship. And Father, I come before you on behalf of those that are, that are already followers of yours today. And we rejoice that the tomb is empty. We are so excited that you are a living Savior, not a dead Savior. If you were still, if you were dead, there, we would be most pitied because we would have false hope. But you are alive. And some of us need second chances too. And if there are some here that need a second chance, I pray for right now that you just speak your grace into their heart and call them back to you. And I pray for those here that just need some encouragement in their faith and need to be energized by you. I pray that you would, you would just breathe new life on them. Show them that you are God, not only the second chance, but the third chance, and the 50th chance. And God, we come to you for forgiveness. We thank you that you cleanse us of all unrighteousness. We want renewed fellowship with you. And some of us need the next step on our faith journey. God, will you speak into our hearts? Will you grow us in that? God, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your truth. Thank you that you've risen. Thank you that you've defeated death. Thank you for your peace and your joy. Thank you for a church family of other people that believe the same thing, that want to live together in this mission for you. And God, we want to praise you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.